This episode of the Good Ship Brothership is brought to you by Dolly Parton's House of Pancakes. Mrs. Parton is pleased to announce, in conjunction with Warner Brothers Entertainment, the opening of her first ever fast food chain, Dolly Parton's House of Pancakes. Simply head on over to www.dollyparton.com and enter the special promo code BROTHERSHIP to receive 10% off of your first full stack of flapjacks. And now on with the show. Oh! What on earth? It's Oh, I've done something so wrong. Can we do this? Uh, yes? Yes? Home, um... Are we still even getting paid for these sponsorships? I feel like some of these have been a little bit sketchy lately. Have been, yeah, some people have just been really reticent to give us our royalty checks. And uh, I don't appreciate that. We'll get them eventually. Dolly. Uh, yeah, it's, for some reason I just stabbed record and I hit like... I don't. I have no idea what I hit and I'm very scared to hit buttons right now. Let's just go. Everything is inverted on the display and it looks very wrong. So, uh, yeah... With that in mind, uh, yeah. welcome back. I'm going to just try and keep going. Okay. Please. Uh, this is our podcast uh, that we've been doing now for... Okay, that's not that's not time. good podcasting. No, I'm just... Okay. okay. Um, <clears throat> are we going to start right, with well, what we've been playing and reading and et cetera? Yeah, we'll start with that. Uh, we've been... Bra- we're breaking up our podcast into two segments, as you guys know, and this is the second segment, so we're recording this with our discussion for social cues. So... We're going to do our best to make this feel like two distinct episodes. Uh, let us know how that's working for you, and uh, and we love you very much. So, Jason, what have you been ingesting? listening to, playing, etc.? Uh, the main thing I want to talk about... Did I talk about this last time? I think so. Assassin's Creed Origins. I'll keep it brief. Uh, I think you touched uh, on it. Because I know the majority of our audience isn't really into video games, which is cool. Uh, Assassin's Creed Origins, though, is actually pretty different than what I expected. I had played Assassin's Creed 2, which came out in 2009, and I was really underwhelmed. I thought, <laughs> I just didn't feel great. I played it when it was quite a few years old, so that was part of it. I it just, those games do not age well. Yeah, it just felt stiff, stuff looked bad, the voice acting was bad. So coming to Origins, I've actually been really impressed with how much they've changed the game. It's now way more of an open world rpg it's one of those things where it's a standard game it doesn't really do anything to blow your mind but it's well built it's well executed and it's the kind of game where i don't have a a big chunks of time to play games very often but i feel like i can just sit down for 30 minutes and i can just explore or do a side quest and it's really relaxing it's really fun to play the game feels good again and i've been really enjoying that um, for TV, I've just been hammering through more of The Office and Dragon's Den, so lots to talk about there in terms <laughs> of an art podcast. Um, for movies, I don't know that I've seen much aside from what we're talking about today, Raging Bull. And for books, I think, guys, you can count me on how long it's been that I wanted to read Heart of Darkness. I need to get better at coming to terms with the fact I'm not really enjoying my time with that book, even though it may be a well-written book. And I think I'm going to abandon it in favor, favor of a Michael Crichton? 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 It's not Crichton. It's like Crichton, I think. Michael Whatever. Crichton. Whatever. The Jurassic nice. Park guy. Yeah. And I'm going to read one of his books, I think. I was saying to Grant, I'm kind of tired of some of these obtuse or richly worded books. I'm sure I'll come back to them at some point in the future. 
but right now I just want a story I can enjoy, you know? And so I'll probably pick I'll probably uh, pick up one of his books. I may read American Gods, and then we'll do an episode on that by Neil Gaiman. Until then, though, I mean, that's pretty much the shape of things. What about you? Um, uh, for me, I've been, I've been, uh, still playing Grim Fandango. I'm almost through it yes. now. I've had a couple issues where my progress has been deleted by crashes and my inability apparently to save manually, but that game is still just such an unrelentingly joyful such experience. Such a delight. It is such a delight. And I can say as well that like you say, people say all the time, you know, oh, that got me through some really tough times, but you know, life can be stressful. My my life can be stressful sometimes in, you know, relative to my existence. And uh, just sitting down at the end of a long, stupid day and just clicking on Grim Fandango and hopping into that world, I'm going to be sad when it's over. And it's not the first time I've played it. Like, I've played this game fully now, almost twice, and some pretty substantial sections at this point in time. I've played like three or almost four times just because of my save issues. And uh, it's just so much fun. It's just, it's so joyful and it's so lovingly made. And I think, I think even people who aren't video game players would find themselves just enthralled with it and would yeah. really enjoy it. Play with a walkthrough and you'll love it. Yeah, it's a puzzle game and some of the puzzles are incredibly impossible to figure out. But uh, I don't think... It hasn't really detracted from the game for me very much too. Basically, every time I run up against something that takes me longer than a half hour to remember how to do, I just Google it and then I'm on my way again. And I mean, yeah, do you have a review, of an early review of this uh, game? I don't know how good it is. Yeah, I'm not Our sure. review, but, but it's way it's way back. Check it out at your it's own in the rest. archives. Uh, and then for uh, for reading, I just picked up a book by uh, Michael Chabon, and I'm looking at my bookshelf over there, Jason. That book you picked me up is Michael Chabon, uh, called uh, what is it called? The Fantastic Adventures of. Let me Google it. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. But I've been dipping my toe into this book, and it. The writing is so gorgeous and so much fun. Ah, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. And uh, it's just been like such a massive blast thus far. And the writing is so um, delicate and so beautifully done. And musically, I've been listening to a lot of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. I've been listening to some Kendrick Lamar. I've been listening to Bahamas still. Uh, so much and, for uh, And for movies, I watched uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp. And it was complete and absolute fluff, just as I expected it would be. And we will not be reviewing it unless somebody, unless one person asks. We've actually and, had, uh, Caleb's asked us to talk about superhero movies in general. And that is something that I'm willing to do. I'm yeah. not sure you guys are going to like it. I would love to do that. Uh, so I, I watched that and uh, I, there, I, I'm positive that there's another movie that I'm leaving out. I'm kind of scrolling here trying to figure out. I watched a bit of... Uh, um, Pulp Fiction, and was reminded why that's such a fun and great movie. But yeah, all in all, uh, fairly fairly low casual consumption of things. I, I start I start like a movie. This one, Body of Lies, and uh, it's just some some movies just try to 
obscure the fact that they don't have a great plot by throwing a lot of bureaucracy into the mm. into the plot, and that just loses me like right away. Like I can I can only take it so long. I get it. You're not operating within their bureaucratic guidelines. You're a loose cannon, but are you gonna get the job done at the end? It's black back to planet Earth for Who me. Who knows? Yeah. So yeah, that's kind of where I've been at. And today uh, we will, we will be reviewing, of course, Raging Bull, which is the most recent film you and I have watched. We watched it yesterday evening in preparation, obviously. First and time both of us have seen it, actually. For, completely first time, which for me, I, I, I wouldn't say I'm a huge Scorsese fan, but it would be really hard not to be kind of a Scorsese fan if you like movies yeah. at all. So, And I'm, I'm a massive fan of Taxi Driver. It's one of my favorite movies, I would have to say. And uh, we also have done a review on that. Yes, we have. Yeah. So, without further ado, we are going to jump into the Gabber Jabber. I think this is the correct uh, setting. No, it's not. That would work. Oh, there it is. That's the original one. This is the original one. Ready? Oh. You're listening to the Gabber Jabber. It's the part of the show where we pick out the most premium of the selections on Canadian Netflix. And we tell you to watch them. Films. Entertainment. Okay, so I think that this time I will go and... Okay, well, I'll tell you not to watch Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Ever. First things first. It's terrible. I can't believe that it hasn't been completely erased from the annals of history. But uh, but there you have it. I will go ahead and recommend, I think... Do, 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 do. Wow. There, there's a lot of good stuff on here right now. Just, I mean, just it let... drives me completely nuts when people say there's nothing good on Netflix, because there is so much. Um, I think I will just go ahead and recommend a guilty pleasure movie. That's something I haven't done yet. All the movies I've recommended have been legitimately good, and this one's legitimately not, and it is Legion. And uh, the description is uh, not loading. Uh, but basically, it's it's this really strange movie about kind of the end of the world and this team of people who gets trapped in this uh, in this diner, like out out in the desert somewhere. You kind of get like kind of an Arizonan sort of vibe. This looks super weird from it. It's very, very strange. It's so weird, and it's uh, it's very cheesy. It's very tacky. It's a real, you know, people's brains getting blown out. There's all sorts of, like, you know, weird kind of zombified creatures. And then, as we can see here, uh, I can't remember his name for the life of me, but he's very, he's a great actor. He's in uh, The Avengers. But this guy shows up, and it turns out, slight spoilers, I'll just say it, though. He's the Archangel Gabriel something something's going down i gotta watch this movie this seems like a weird movie a lot more than just zombified people swarming this one diner it is it is so strange i actually love the premise a little bit um the acting is totally uh just kind of phoned in but like man was it just it was a ride from start to finish oh yeah and i was like laughing the entire time really good fun legion uh if you have some sort of a uh, stomach. You know, don't watch it if you're squeamish at all in any way. 
or have something against violence against old ladies. Anyway, uh, in this uh, episode, we will be reviewing Raging Bull, the critically acclaimed film by Martin Scorsese, and I will read to you now from Wikipedia in order to enlighten you if you do not already know what that is. Okay. What are you doing? Oh, you're getting the puppet. Okay. I was talking to Jason there, everybody. Okay, Raging Bull is a 1980 American biographical sports drama film. Wow. (laughs) Directed by Martin Scorsese, produced by Robert Chartoff and Erwin Winkler, and adapted by Paul Schrader and Mardik Martin from Jake LaMotta's memoir, Raging Bull, My Story. It stars Robert De Niro as Jake LaMotta, an Italian-American middleweight boxer whose self-destructive and obsessive rage sexual jealousy and animalistic appetite destroyed his relationship with his wife and family also featured in the film are joe pesci as joey jake lamotta's well-intentioned brother and manager who tries to help jake battle his inner demons and kathy moriarty as his wife the film the film features supporting roles from nicholas colasanto teresa saldana and frank vincent Scorsese was initially reluctant to develop the project, though he eventually came to relate to LaMotta's story. Schrader rewrote Martin's first screenplay and Scorsese. I hate this. They mentioned Martin Scorsese as Martin and then Scorsese. Hmm. Is he Martin or Scorsese? Come on, Wikipedia. Uh, uh Uh-oh, I just clicked on something. Uh, Anyway, the film did not do well upon its initial release. It did not do well and... uh, and it went on to garner high critical reception and is now often considered Scorsese's magnum opus and one of the greatest films ever made. Also, Joe Pesci's breakout role. Yes. The film was nominated for eight Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Director. The film won two for Best Actor for De Niro, his second Oscar, probably for his second movie too, I think, and Best Editing. In 1990, it became the first film to be selected for preservation in the National Film Registry, in its first year of eligibility. Interesting. Which is pretty, like, that is, that's significant, eh? Mm-hmm. The National Film Registry. Registry. I mean, you have to assume that it's American, so they're not going to pick, like, a Kurosawa or something yeah. like that, because it's American. But, yeah, so, interesting kind of production history on this movie. Uh, it took a lot of convincing, mostly from Robert De Niro, to get Scorsese to the place where he even wanted to direct this movie. So he's very reluctant to do so, and the process from, you know, idea to actual, you know, first day of filming was very long and very protracted and very, a lot of hesitation, a lot of goading on the part of Scorsese and De Niro, respectively. And several of the actors cast in it, like we said, Joe Pesci and uh, Kathy Moriarty, were relatively unknown actors. Scorsese, at the time, I suppose, liked to cast very unknown actors in his movies, which he then, he really never, you know, let go of that central cast, which is interesting. So, yeah, and it is based on the true story of Jake LaMotta, the uh, boxer, and we are going to get right into our thoughts on it. So, Jason, if you want to flip the puppet. I think I'm still face up. Sure, you may be, you may remain faithful. We up. can change it episode to episode, but I mean, hey. I mean, yeah, it's your world champ. Go ahead, you start. That works All out right. Well. Okay, so having never seen this this film, I was I was very very much looking forward to it, but I was kind of concerned. I 
was sort of worried that it was going to be a kind of Godfather style, uh, like kind of dragging sort of... I love The Godfather, but it's not something you can watch every day. No, you really can't watch it more than maybe once a year. And I was kind of worried that it would fall into that category just because of the status Mm -hmm. of the movie. And, you know, you look at like a lot of the most famous movies, books, they're huge. Even like probably collectively our favorite film of all time, Apocalypse Now, you know, phenomenal movie, pretty draggy. Yeah, very long, but it it doesn't drag. It doesn't. No. It's not like that, but it's You know what it's I'm saying? substantial. Yeah. It's hev- it's, it's spread hefty. out. So I was worried about that, but from the first image of the movie, the 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 opening credits, it's just it's pure cinema in its in its most beautiful presentation. You got a slow motion kind of hooded boxer in in his robe bouncing you know he's amped up he's ready for the match he's bouncing slowly in slow motion in the ring and you've got the kind of the beautiful framing of the three ropes kind of cutting across the uh, picture and then you just see the crowd quickly falling away behind him into blackness and that really got me started on a habit for this movie i suppose of noticing the visuals and martin scorsese's visual strengths and uh and i came to realize that martin scorsese is just the maestro of the streets particularly the more maybe working class obviously italian american uh neighborhoods in I mean, this film's largely set in the 40s, but even in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, whatever. He really has this underlying passion for that. And and he displays that the corner deli with even more gravity and passion than like a posh nightclub or, you know, the grand cathedral of a boxing hall. We really don't get... You don't get that intimacy with the more high end of his locations. A lot of this street level stuff has so much character and so much heart and soul in it as you're watching the movie. And I mean, a lot of the, it's not to say that the movie takes place solely on the streets like Taxi Driver, say, but when you're, when you're just watching it, the, the city, the environment that these characters come out in is an incredibly important character. Uh, but that's just outside the ring, as it were. Inside the ring, it is a totally different world. You know, you've got a really striking scene, just a, a short shot in which rippling heat coming off of the crowd or whatever obscures this kind of like prowling referee. It's all in slow motion again. Uh, the audience just kind of fading out into the crowd of gloom, almost becoming like a single entity. And the focus of the boxing matches themselves are very much inside the ring from the point of view of the fighters themselves. The sounds get kind of muffled and the focus is very narrowed. And, uh, and I just found the fight scenes to be incredibly immersive. You could always tell who was winning. Visceral. Very visceral. You could tell 
where they were in the ring at all times, which is a lot more than you can say for like a modern superhero flick. And this is kind of a running theme is why can't we pull this off now? Uh, in terms of the writing, the dialogue is just a solid like chain of firecrackers. It pro- and it provides the film with its most tense moments, in my opinion, in contrast with the fight scenes, which are kind of weirdly zen. tranquil and meditative spaces in the in the film and then outside of it outside of the war zone the violence of the boxing match is where the tension and the danger kind of grows from and uh and i found that to be incredibly insightful and incredibly beautifully done and done in an underhand kind of way and not at all how you would typically frame a boxing movie like this with the fights as pinnacles even the uh, even the title fight in the movie when uh, Jake LaMotta finally gets uh, is able to fight for the title, they don't ramp up to it. It's not like Karate Kid where there's this huge you know big training montage or something like that. It just kind of happens, and I found that to be incredibly really lends itself to keeping your focus on the characters and not on the events that the characters are headed towards. The acting uh, from De Niro and Pesci as a pair of brothers, as Joey and Jake, they really lay an unshakable foundation for the film as an unbelievably believable set of brothers. And believe us, we would know. We would know. We are very good at knowing that. And uh, just the fights they get into, the honesty they have with each other, and the the lack of a filter they have when they're around each other, even uh, the Jake LaMotta, uh, Jake LaMotta, sorry, the De Niro character says to Joey, you know, stop swearing around me so much. You got to stop swearing around me so much. And it's like, yeah, well, that's that, you know, you, you lose your filter when you're with somebody you're that close with your Mm. brother. Uh, Jake himself, the, the main character played by Robert De Niro is a completely loathsome human being, in my opinion. He is misogynistic in the extreme. He's cruel and he is narcissistic. But I found myself always wanting him to win. I have that exact same thing in my notes too. Make any sense? He's not likable, and he is definitely not an underdog. He's he was Jake Lamotta was an incredible boxer. Let me pull up my notes verbatim here for a second. Sure. I just say in here, and this is just me quoting from my own notes. No one's a hero in the movie, that's for sure. I like the d- dynamic that no matter how much you resent Joe LaMotta, you always end up cheering for him when he steps in the ring. And I, I was trying to think about why that is. Like, why, why do I want him to win? Like, is it just... Because, because everyone we... else wants him to win. Because yeah. if anyone's a hero in the movie, or if anyone's a good guy in the movie... It's his brother Joey, and his brother Joey wants him to win, and I want what Joey wants. Yeah, okay, that's that's smartly observed, I'd say, and brings me to my next point, which is about Joey, and he is a widely likable character. He's portrayed with really, really beautiful nuance and humanity by Pesci, who in later years got really typecast into the high-strung, volatile 
character, which he is a little bit here. But if he's high, strong, and volatile, it's because his brother made him that way. Yeah. His brother, who's incredibly difficult to work with and incredibly entitled and incredibly famous, really. Uh, which you don't really you don't really see a lot of that either. You mm. don't see that fame and how it affects him in from like a street level. Real, you don't really see that. You see that mm. a little bit in the later scenes when he's in his kind of twilight years. But uh, he's uh, he is flawed. This is Joey. I'm speaking about the brother. He is flawed and he's heavy handed. But he has this warmth and this good intention about him that that just really brought that character to life for me. I. I really wanted to follow him, uh, you know, into his twilight years as well, which we don't really see as much of because, of course, we're with Jake, uh, the the star, the boxer, the troubled individual, uh, and Kathy Moriarty as well as Vicky, uh, Jake LaMotta's wife, does actually a, a really excellent and in a quiet way does an excellent job, I think, as Mrs. LaMotta. She, you can see her getting more rebellious and just giving giving far less care to her husband's kind of opinion and his... She just, you see her getting more and more fed up over the course of the film, like really slowly. And I think that Kathy Moriarty did a very good job of portraying that with just her kind of mannerism, how she just kind of huffs him off in uh, some of the later sequences. I will say, though, when they meet, <laughs> she's supposed to be 15 years old. Mm-hmm. And she, which is true to life, I believe, mm-hmm. she does not look a day under 25. Like, not it's a single not a single day under 25. And you've even got the Joe, Pe- Joe Pesci's character, Joey, going, hey, man, don't hit on her. She's 15 years old. And it's like, is she? We were like, did we hear that right? I yeah. ended up Googling it. Yeah, and we were like, oh, wow, she really is supposed to be. She doesn't look a day over under 25, and at the end of the movie, she doesn't look a day over 25. But truth be told... After, like, 15 years have passed in the movie. But, but at which time she would have been, you know, about that age. She, yeah, she would have been 30. And, and she looks, you know, the appropriate age by the end of the movie. Yeah. Which is the point, probably, in which her character comes to be, you know, actually important. I think she was great. I think she has a very uh, expressive and really great face, too, for acting. Mm-hmm. Uh, that kind of reminded me of the lady who's an alien. What's her name? I can never remember her Sigourney name. Sigourney Weaver. Yeah, it's like one of the most memorable names in yeah. Hollywood, Sigourney, and I can't remember it. But she kind of has that kind of, uh, just that kind of face, almost like a like a Greek statue or something like that. There's a hardness there. There's a beauty, but there's also this kind of harshness there, like a, you know, almost a vicious kind of thing hiding behind there. And yeah, I, I just think she did a, a great job. Do you disagree? No. Okay. Because you were just kind of giving me weird eyebrows while I was saying that. Anyway, uh, the, the last thing I want to touch upon in the uh, furthering in the why can't it be like this now is the aging. This is a movie that takes place over the course of, is it two decades? It's around fifth. It technically it's 25 years. Okay. But most of the movie takes place over more like 12. Yeah. But, but the extremity, the extremity is I think about 64 to 41. 
right. so 23 years. So so we see we see this incredible transformation in both De Niro and Pesci in terms of just their looks over that amount of time. And I don't exactly know what they did. I mean, it's clear that they thinned out Joe Pesci's hair and kind of gave him a receding hairline. He grew a mustache. He looks a bit more skinny and frail. And, they emphasized his wrinkles and stuff. Yeah, and for De Niro sure. has gained 60 like, pounds. He, for and, real, Grant was saying they took a four-month break and paid all the crew and stuff. Yes. Well, he just went and stuffed himself day after day and he gained like 60 pounds. For four months. Yeah, yeah in four months, which is wild. Yeah, so they... Uh, but, yeah, so De Niro's put on all this weight. His hair's kind of thinned a little bit as well. And he's they've put this prosthetic nose on him, which bothered me a little bit at first. And then you just don't really realize it. I didn't notice it, it to be honest. Uh, after a little bit. Um, it's just incredible. It was honestly spine-chilling for me to see that done, I would say, better than I've ever seen a movie do it. Probably for in terms of aging their characters, and you really do. I completely believed that they were a couple like twenty five years older. A and good it, example of a newer movie that does it horribly, and a great movie at that is There Will Be Blood. Yeah, I was is, just thinking about that. There Will Be Blood is a movie that takes place over around ten years, I would say, give or take a couple years. Yeah, and at the end, uh, uh, Daniel Plainview, the probably the main character as well as his antagonist, look pretty much like not a day older. And I really struggle with that if they're meant to be archetypes and then their kind of ageless quality hints at that or if it's just weird. I, I think it's I'm just weird, sure. honestly. But the last thing too is I went into Raging Bull and I expected a a kind of savage tale of a you know tortured warrior and all this sort of thing but i did not at any point expect to have my heart broken by it and there is a scene um with jake lamada where he's basically at the end of the line he's you know exhausted all of his resources and everything he's done is finally caught up with him and he just kind of breaks down and i was i was totally affected by it and it's strange because like you said he's a despicable soul he has very few redeemable qualities he's only nice to people when he needs something from them or when he wants to manipulate them but at the end of the day you feel heartbroken when everything catches up to him it's yeah, strange it's absolutely like... I, and I, and that that scene yeah the scene just the writing in it and how it's acted i was like i didn't cry but like i could have you yeah. know it was it was that emotionally uh charged i guess and, sure and the final the final shots the final scene in the movie is also one of the best in the movie i think mm -hmm. and the way that the the film ends is I there's no way I could spoil anything by telling it to you but it really is special enough that you have to go see it you have to sit down I think with this movie and you have to give it it's what is it two and a half hours not even give or it's take. like uh, 130 minutes okay I, I yeah I would I would truly truly urge you if you if you enjoy movies if you enjoy stories and particularly if you enjoy books and reading 
or mm-hmm. plays, anything like that, to seek this movie out and watch it. I think it's mandatory viewing, really, and I am so glad that I've finally seen it because it's like, on one hand, I'm sad that I'll never see it for the first time again, but on the other hand, what a what an enriching experience it was. It is worth noting, though, just as a disclaimer, huge amount of language in this movie. Yeah. And also harsh, like, really bad treatment of women, although the latter is totally vilified. Like, it's not like they glorify bad treatment of women. No, not at all. But, like, not for the faint of heart. Yeah, no, if, yeah, it's, yeah, there's some rough stuff in the movie. Definitely. Uh, And then one one interesting tidbit I do want to mention before you get on to your, uh, your review is the reason it's in black and white. Okay? This movie came out in 1980, right? Mm-hmm. They had had color film accessible to them for at least a decade. Yeah. At that point. I mean, for goodness sakes, the uh, Man With No Name trilogy came out in like the 60s, I yeah. believe, and it's in color. Started in 67 or something like that. So the reason it's in black and white was one of their, I think, I'm not sure if it was a writer or a producer or something like that, saw some test footage of De Niro in the ring with boxing gloves on and he, he was just kind of shadow boxing, whatever, kind of just testing out the camera for the role. And he said, you know, the gloves that Robert's wearing are really not period accurate. They're bright red and they would have been maroon or black or kind of like a faded red color. And that cited as one of the reasons it's in black really? and white. Another that. reason it's in black and white is because I guess the the physical film itself at that point in time, there was a real problem with the color desaturating over time the longer it was stored. That's so still the color, an issue today. The color, yeah, the color bleaches literally out of the out of the film itself. And so Robert De Niro was not Robert De Niro. I'm sorry, Martin Scorsese was uh, mindful of that and decided to go with black and white because it wouldn't fade with time, which is. Which is a really interesting. He's playing the long reason. game. Yeah, yeah, and uh, also so that they wouldn't have to worry about the period correct color of. I didn't know boxing that. gloves. Yeah, I thought that was pretty funny. And that's interesting because I was gonna. I was surprised you didn't bring it up earlier. The film works so well in black and white in a way that I don't think it would in uh, color. I don't. It's not that I think it would be a bad film in color by any stretch of the imagination, but I think the kind of starkness and the detached nature and the fact that this movie in black and white is very contrast heavy which i can't really offer a real explanation you'll just have to go watch it and see if you agree with me the really rich contrast and the bright whites and the and the rich like the crushed velvety blacks just lend themselves to like this aggressive movie to me you know i think that a big part of it and I truly didn't even notice it was in black and white. It's like Embrace of the Serpent, another one of our favorite movies of all time. Really didn't even, after a couple minutes, didn't notice it was black and white. And then at one point, they go to color. And the color sequence played for probably a minute and a half before I turned to you and went, it's in color now. Uh (laughs) (laughs) And, And I think that speaks volumes to how well the black and white works. I know a lot of people now, like a lot of younger kids... They don't want to watch movies in black and white. And I cannot wrap my head around it. I'm like, what is the big deal? It's interesting, too. What, what's the big deal? You see a trend amongst 
I don't know how to put it without being mean. Like Instagram photographers, yeah, who have a lot of followers just because of their they make their own Lightroom presets, yeah, like called Smoky Forest and uh, Mountaintop Sunset and uh, Neon One Two Three Four up to like Neon Sixty Nine. Yeah, um, that was the name of my first band. <laughs> you see these really trendy Instagram people use all these very rich oversaturated colors the blues and the oranges the neons that everyone's tired of you don't see a lot of trendy photographers going in black and white which is interesting because to me for film and for photography and even for painting you could make the argument that black and white is the most timeless but it's also the most challenging i think maybe so if you're shooting in black and white your subject has to be good your framing has to be spot on because all you're left with in black and white, at a basic level, is shape. You're left with shape. I mean, there's shape well, and light are the two yeah, things that you study exactly. when you do black and white photography and cinematography. And those too. are the things that you know uh, a lesser photographer or c- cinematographer, whatever. Those are things you can ignore pretty pretty effectively when you have have you know color on your side because sure. it really pulls the eye in. I also think that the <clears throat> the black and white in this movie does an excellent job of, like I said, narrowing that field of focus when they're in the boxing ring. Uh-huh. And the audience drops off like really quickly to just black. Like you can really only see when they're boxing, you can only see like a couple rows of people before it just drops off into total pitch darkness. And a lot of times you have key characters in those rows. Exactly. You have uh, Salvi, whatever, the Tommy, the mob boss, Vicky, yep. will be sitting in the front row, so you watch them react to the fight, and beyond that, it kind of fades into this murky crowd, which is really cool, you're right. Um, I don't have a huge amount to add to the conversation, because I mostly do agree with what you said. I think this is a beautiful-looking movie. It's shot fantastically. I was thinking, when you started talking about the one-shot, a shot that stuck out to me was the scene when uh, De Niro is training, he's cutting weight. And he's skipping in a, like a bath room, in, like a bath house in a sauna. that's all steamed up. Yeah. yeah, a sauna. Sorry. And as his boot camp instructor, I guess, is coming to check on him, there's this long shot where you see this guy's half this guy's head silhouetted against all the steam and backlit, and it's just beautiful. And it's one of those things where at first you don't, for the first two seconds, you don't quite know what's going on, and then it starts to take shape and it starts to. The mist swirls around, you start to see more and more, and then eventually it just becomes, I'm using air quotes here, a normal shot. And that kind of transition is actually super impressive, and I always respect it when a movie can go from a really artsy shot to a really functional shot and blend them as seamlessly as this movie does. And there's one other thing about the camera work, too. When uh, Jake LaMotta is fighting Sugar Ray Robinson Mm -hmm. in the last fight, and is that a Hitchcock zoom? That takes place at one mm. point. Sugar Ray Robinson kind of steps back into the ring and he's kind of bouncing in place and the camera seems to pull back, but he gets bigger. Yeah, that would be a Hitchcock zoom. And it's it's just like a chill, like I'm getting chills thinking about it mm-hmm. right now. How how affecting that that simple move is. A Hitchcock zoom is just where you zoom out the lens, so you switch to wide well, angle well, as you bring it in yeah. towards your subject. Yeah. So the subject, usually the subject stays the same size in the frame, but I mean, you can make them grow if you wanted and everything becomes more exaggerated for facial features and the background pulls away and they become separated. Yeah. Um, 
so cool. I love, I love <laughs> Very that. Very cool. If you guys ever are interested, there's a great uh, movie on, or a great video on YouTube. Look up like Hitchcock Zoom Jaws. Uh, Jamie Windsor is a guy who talks about cinematography and how different focal lengths affect it, different lenses affect it. And yeah, it's a great education if you're looking for just like a 10 minute video on how different lenses alter cinema. Anyways, all that to say, this is really a functionally beautiful movie. It's not art house shot like something like Punch Drunk Love where every frame is its own photograph. Yeah. But at the same time, it's this function. It has this functional beauty, this rawness. I especially love how the boxing matches are shot with these quick cuts, but it doesn't feel rushed on impact a lot of times. The camera angle will switch. There's this really wonderful rhythm that you kind of get used to as you're watching it that always keeps things moving rapidly without feeling jump cutty like say a michael bay movie a lot of times it's just like jumping around you don't even know what's going on it's not jarring right at all it's very smooth it's very musical Mm -hmm. i totally agree about the character aging it's mind-boggling i turned to you and i said is that even still robert de niro like it still looks like him, but how could it be? Yeah. And it is. And that's, that's a true, like. And it, that, that's transformative acting. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Not Christian Bale putting on a whole bunch of weight on everything but his face. Which for, I still think is impressive. What? The fact that he put on a bunch of weight? Yeah. And shaved the top of his head bald? I can do that. The difference between the machinist and American whatever it is, it's impressive. Furthermore, yeah, the characters are fantastic. I guess. At this point, I should stop underestimating Martin Scorsese, especially, like, I mean, look at his roster of films. But every time, I feel like it's going to be a cheaper-feeling movie than it is. But I always end up being like, wow, these guys, I really grow attached to them. And the central conflict that you have as a viewer with Jake LaMotta that we talked about, where you despise him, but you still kind of root for him, I think is very interesting and one of the main reasons the movie works, because... You see all the characters around Jake feel the same way you do as a viewer. And that really legitimizes the story for me. You see his wife, Vicky, and his brother... What's his brother's name? Joey. His brother, Joey, really have hot and cold off and on relationships with Jake. As Jake is pretty much... uh, He's rude and even abusive to the point where... They go to turn their back on him, and then he goes to Vicky, and he goes, oh, baby, baby, I'm so sorry. Let me make it up to you, and, like, kind of wins him back. And that's the way you feel as the viewer, right? Yeah. You get sick of him to the point where it's like, I don't even know, like, there wasn't a point when I wanted to stop watching the movie, but you're kind of like, oh, it makes you uncomfortable. It's like, I don't like this. And then he steps in the ring against uh, whatever that guy's name is, the pretty boy, who he fights maybe halfway through, maybe not quite halfway through. And you're like, yeah, yeah break so, his nose. Yeah, because he, he suspects this guy of yeah. sleeping with his wife, which I don't think he actually yeah. happened. And and he's furious, and he just absolutely destroys the guy. Like, in a brutal, like, brutally beats him in the boxing ring. And I was totally triumphant with him mm-hmm. in that moment, which I shouldn't have been. Yeah, and that's also worth noting is his deterioration of character over the course of the movie is so well done the character transformation is not only physical but it's very much um we really see the mental state of lamada played out over the course of the movie 
and it really frays your nerves. The way he suspects his wife constantly of sleeping around, sleeping with his brother. Um, I'm not going to go into too many spoilers, but just the way he devolves from kind of an egomaniac to... Just a cocky... Yeah, initially it's like guy. initially it's like he's kind of a jerk, but whatever. And then towards the end, it's like ah, he's unbearable. He's paranoid. Yeah, I yeah. can't. I can't even hardly stand to watch this. He's anymore. paranoid. He becomes fake. He develops this like persona. Yeah, yeah, it's really powerful it's and it's really something. astounding. Also, I just want to take a quick moment to shout out the fact um, that I am no Georges Jorge Saint Pierre by any stretch of the imagination. But I've, I've put in my years doing various martial arts, and I was super impressed with how good the fighters are, yeah. how good everything looks. Their form is fantastic. It's convincing. It gets swingy more so than would be in general. But then again, Jake LaMotta was known as being a brawler. And boxing is more like that. And too. boxing's a bit more swingy. So, yeah, I mean, I'll, overall, it does fighting much better than most other movies. I was reading that actually De Niro... De Niro uh, trained as a boxer and fought three actual matches as a as a boxer. I believe and that. won two out of the three of them. And <laughs> Jake LaMotta said that he had like incredible potential for being an actual <laughs> professional boxer. Interesting. Yeah, but I thought their form was really spectacular, and that's something that certain movies nail. You see, a movie like John Wick is really yeah. like completely legit but then far more often you see movies that kind of maybe look good but aren't how people actually fight totally phone it in yeah most of the time but yeah from my perspective as a two-bit martial artist it was it's very well done yeah so at the end of the day i mean there's no reason not to see raging bull probably my only significant gripe was like we said the fact that uh, vicky really doesn't look her age at the beginning and even uh, Jake LaMotta, I think he's supposed to be like 21, 22, and he looks like he's pushing 30. A little bit, yeah. yeah. So that's a little bit off. But, I mean, that's if that's the biggest thing you can find wrong with a movie, then you're feeling pretty good. Yeah. Now, how do you think that it, Raging Bull stacks up to Taxi Driver? Oh, oh you've only seen Taxi Driver once. Right? I have only seen Taxi Driver once. I think I enjoyed this more. Taxi Driver is not a movie about relationships there's really only one character that you really get to know right Mm -hmm. it's really all about robert de niro's character in that movie and it's more of it's less of an emotional movie we watch him in taxi driver yeah we watch him come unraveled and it's shocking the violence is is really unnerving and that's a great movie too but I think Raging Bull is interesting because it also has that aspect of violence and of a character unraveling. But surrounded that, we have other people who personally get impacted. And I think that makes it a little bit more multi-dimensional. That said, I really want to go back and watch both of these movies again. I guess I'm just such a sucker for the solipsistic, like, lone, um, lone man detached from society, kind of slowly slowly sinking you know into into himself that's because that's your life yeah well exactly and i think that's probably why i connect with taxi driver so much but yeah i don't know it's time will tell for the moment like my gut says that i like taxi driver more but i have seen it quite a few times and and i know what i like about it and i know what i don't like about it but yeah phenomenal phenomenal movie either way martin scorsese this guy shows promise
I think he might go somewhere. Anyway, uh, we've come to the part of the show where I guess we'll read out our listener correspondence. Yeah. From Harrison. Thanks, Harrison. Uh, yeah, thank you so much, Harrison. So you in our for me. yeah, in our last, Jason's just handed me a Ziploc freezer bag with a single used Kleenex. In it's it. only half used, and it's sealed. The bag is sealed as well, so we won't we won't speculate. Sometimes but, when I blow my nose, I'm worried that I could be patient zero just for something. So you know that would be that's a that would be a great thing if if I ever became like a rich reclusive author. That would be something I would do is have is just blow my nose and throw every Kleenex into a single Ziploc bag and like zip it up just so that just so that people think you're like completely insane. <laughs> anyway, okay. so in our last episode, I believe we mentioned American Psycho because it, it was a film that I had watched and uh, Harrison Owens wrote into us on Facebook as you can and said uh, quick thought about American Psycho. I don't like Christian Bale ver- Christian Bale very much, and in some way, I almost feel like my dislike of him aided in his believableness as such a scummy character. I normally try to divorce my feelings about actors from the roles that they are playing, but in this instance, it just works so well. And I completely agree with that. Um, Jason, I know you haven't seen American Psycho, but mm. Christian Bale, uh, I, I said, I, I responded to, the, to his message and said, I find Bale to be a cold, shallow, and uninteresting screen presence 99% of the time. Like him in the big short. Doesn't matter if he's fat, ripped, bald, hairy, rugged, or polished. But boy, can he play the cold, rich a-hole well. I wonder why. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think that that's a really... I think Harrison really hit on something. Uh, pretty pretty, pretty uh, succinct there. And uh, he also recommended that we would watch uh, Interstellar. And review it on the show. I'd be very interested to do that. I have never seen Interstellar. Grant has. And it seems to be one of the more critically acclaimed like blockbusters of the last few years. Yeah. And it's in some ways it's kind of the one that got away from me. I would have liked to see it in the theater. But I'm more than willing to watch it now. Yeah. So we will do our very best to review Interstellar in the next episode or two. And until then, I have been Grant... And until then, I have been Grant. And I have been Jason. Okay, thank you so much for listening. Once again, of course, you can write into us with any kind of recommendations or uh, reviews of your own, and we would absolutely be tickled to read them out on the show. Thanks for listening, and peace out. Good night, sweet prince. This episode of the Good Ship Brothership is brought to you by <laughs> This episode of the Good Ship Brothership is brought to you by Dolly Parton's House of Pancakes. <laughs>